We are in Revelation chapter 17 this morning. You can go ahead and get your Bibles and turn there. So Revelation chapter 17. Before we read that together, just to ground you where we are as we are kind of now on this path now. No more interruptions, I I don't think, between now and the end of the book of Revelation. So we have 17 and 18 talking about Babylon. Uh, Remember in chapter uh, 16, uh, we had the Battle of Armageddon. We have the, the end of the age coming. In 17 and 18, we have 17 focusing on the false religion that Babylon brings. And in chapter 18, we have the economic and political system of Babylon being judged, and both are falling in chapter 17 and 18 at the hand of God, as God is judging once and for all the lies and the falsehood of false religion and of uh, the, the lies and deceit of, of materialism and wealth and the false security that money brings. All of those things are being judged. Then we come into chapter 19, and we have uh, the triumph of the Lamb of God, and we have Jesus now beginning to rule and to reign victorious, and then in the following chapters, we have the millennial, the thousand-year reign of Christ, and then we have the new heaven and the new earth, and we have the marriage supper of the Lamb. All of that stuff is coming, so we will turn a corner beginning with chapter 19 and be speeding toward what our lives will look at, look like forever and ever and ever in the presence of God. So uh, chapter 17 and 18 this week and next week, looking at God's final judgment on the world. So chapter 17, we'll read that. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. With whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her head a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. But the angel said to me, why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen. One is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. And the beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is uh, of the seven or proceeding from the seven and is going to perdition. And the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as the kings with the beast. Excuse me, as kings with the beast. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them. For he is lord of lords and king of kings, and those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. And he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. 
For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind, and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. And so, Lord, as we read this chapter and we think about what you have for us, we just open our hearts and our minds, Lord. And we ask you to speak to us. We ask you to make plain to us these things that we need to know and that we need to understand about the end times, about the last days, and especially about this woman, this harlot, Babylon, the false religious system, and how you bring it all down, how you bring it all to nothing. And even with all of these wars and these horrible things happening, Lord, as we've seen all the way since chapter 6 until now, you have been in control of every single thing. There is not one thing that has happened that you haven't ordained and that has not first come by your throne. And so, Lord, we open our hearts this morning to all that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Clearly, this is probably one of the more difficult chapters, and it has a lot of symbolism in it. And as we talked all the way back at the beginning of the book of Revelation, we need to go back to the Old Testament primarily with the over 500 references to the Old Testament and make sense of this. In fact, uh, in this chapter, I would say this chapter and the next chapter, there's probably more symbolism for us than there has been in really all of the book of Revelation. I think all of the other symbols have been easily explainable. This one, these are, in some respects, maybe a little bit more obscure. But as we start this uh, section here in Revelation 17, beginning with the first two verses there, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me saying, come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. He's painting a picture here, and he's setting the stage for uh, where he says in the end of verse 1, the judgment of the great harlot. In the scriptures, of course, the word harlot or, or whore, which the scriptures both uses interchangeably, it speaks not only of the physical act of someone who is a prostitute, but it more frequently refers to spiritual adultery, spiritual harlotry toward the Lord. And in fact, the prophets of the Old Testament, as you read them, Nahum, Habakkuk, they're all speaking, Jeremiah, Isaiah, they all speak of the harlotry of Israel. And every time Israel, his chosen people, went after other gods, and the King James is much more graphic here, Words like they have gone whoring after other gods are used to describe that they turned their back on the one true and living God and went after other gods. In fact, nowhere can this be illustrated more clearly and more plainly than at the base of the mountain while Moses was up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments from God. And they were at the base of the mountain doing what? Worshiping idols taking gold, uh, creating the golden calf. They had a a, a sexual scene there at the base of the mountain, which is tantamount, really, if we were going to compare it to the church, to, to, to people doing that kind of thing in a church building, in a sanctuary. And so this, this was beginning all the way back at the, the beginning of God's relationship with his people and bringing them out of the nation of uh, Egypt and, and delivering them from the bondage and being symbolic of God delivering them from the bondage of sin and freeing them and showing them the right way, the pure way. And yet they immediately from the very beginning began to uh, rebel against the provision of God. And then we have all the stories there through Uh, the book of Exodus of how they wandered after other gods and then as they they went in and and Joshua and Judges and they occupied the land right away the first problems they began to have as they began to go and to occupy was their hearts immediately went after other gods and God kept telling them no don't do that so by this point in human history and I would say we're at this point today uh, people as a whole have rejected God God has been so clear in revealing himself. In fact, God has said 
that in the end, on that great day, when people stand before him, every person will be without excuse. God will have revealed himself to every person. And whether God has physically used a person or some other means, such as radio or TV or tracks or whatever it might be, to reach people in their language, everyone will have been reached in some way. Everyone will be without excuse. And let me also kind of draw your attention back to the book of Genesis, uh, chapters 10 and 11. We have the story of Nimrod. Now, Nimrod was a descendant from Moses. He was actually Moses' grandson or great-grandson. I think it's his great-grandson. So as you go back and you read Genesis 10 and 11, and I encourage you to do that, uh, you will find that Nimrod was the one who founded Babylon. And it was, remember, it was through Nimrod and his family they tried to reach uh, heaven by building a great tower. And we know that tower described in the, the scriptures as the Tower of Babel. Now, it's interesting, uh, it, the word Babel, um, if you look in your Bible there and you read it uh, in Genesis 10 and 11, you usually have a little footnote and it says confusion. Uh, just to put a pause there for a moment, do you realize today there's an app that you can get for your smartphone called Babel, which is so you can go to a foreign country and you can turn it on and as your person that you're speaking to is speaking their language, it will translate it for you so that you can then communicate back and then you can speak in your language and it will speak back to them in their language. It's just interesting, free information, that we have an app called Babel. Now, where in the world did the developers of that app get the name? I would say they got it from the book of Genesis. So even the people, and I don't know if the people are believers or not, I have no idea, but you've got to believe that there's some prophetic significance to apps, and that's not the only one out there, but they, they decided to call this one Babel. I just find that very interesting. Anyways, back to our story. The Tower of Babel um, is where everything was founded. It's where the confusion of languages came. It's uh, you know part of what they were trying to do when you go and you read the story. Uh, they wanted to reach heaven. They wanted to become gods, and this was the ultimate fulfillment of Satan's divine purpose. You know, we've looked a number of times now as we've been studying the book of Revelation back at Satan's origin, back at his fall in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. And, and we've looked at how he said, I will, I will, I will. And here we find that trying to be fulfilled there in Genesis 10 and 11. And when you go and you read Genesis 10 and 11, you see the Lord himself came down walked among them and said, let us, using the same language as at the beginning of the book of Genesis, in Genesis 1, where he says, let us create the earth, let us create man in our own image, speaking of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And now you have here in Genesis 10 and 11, where the, the Father is speaking, saying, let us go down and see what they're doing. So God comes to manifest his presence and walk among the people. And of course, God knew but he goes to walk among them to see what's happening. And he says, we have to do something about this. And thus God brought the confusion to the languages. And he scattered the peoples. This is the origin of Babylon. This is the origin of when people began to take their rebellion against God to a whole new level. And so I'll leave it up to you later for extra credit to go back and to read Genesis 10 and 11 and to understand what happened back then. But that's the origin of what's being judged here in Revelation chapter 17. And so it says here, again, to reground us, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. And the many waters are defined later for us in verse 15 as the peoples, the tribes, the tongues, the nations. And so the, the great waters is used metaphorically or symbolically of the people of the earth during that time. And notice it says in verse 2, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. What was it that this woman, this harlot, this Babylonian symbol that she offered them? Well, first she offered them. Remember, if we go back and think back just a few chapters, how in chapter 13, there was the revealing of the great beast in the first half of chapter 13. And that beast was the Antichrist who came up from the sea. Remember, there was the beast who later rose from the land, and he was the false prophet. So the beast and the false prophet working in tandem with the great red dragon, who was Satan himself, 
And the earth has formed its alliance with the false prophet, with the Antichrist, with Satan himself, with the spirit of Antichrist, as John referred to him in his epistles. And the whole earth has bought into the Antichrist's false religious system. The Antichrist has brought at this point, all the way back to the beginning of the time of the tribulation, he's brought world peace. Uh, He's unified the world. It's the first time in the history of mankind that the entire world will be unified under one leader. He will be a charismatic leader. He will be someone who can cater to both Jews and Muslims and Gentiles. And he will have the whole world somehow unified and deceived for that first three and a half years of his reign until the day in the middle of the tribulation when he goes into the most holy place, commits the abomination of desolations, uh, sits down on on the throne of God there in the very holy place, and proclaims himself to be God and demands that the entire earth worship him. And it's then that the false prophet and the Antichrist truly rise to power. They get the whole world deceived, and then all of these uh, you know, kings and kingdoms and horns, all these things come together, and they fall underneath his rule and his reign. And so now God is bringing it to the end, and he's saying to these, to these people, to uh, the kings and the kingdoms, saying that all who have become an ally and formed a partnership with the great harlot, God will begin to judge them, beginning with the religious system in this chapter and again with the economic and political system in chapter 18. So that's sort of the background here as we roll through this. And we find here, and uh, we'll look at this as we go, go along, but here in chapters 17 and 18, the great harlot is referred to uh, seven times. But as we get to chapter 19 and go through the rest, we find the bride of Christ. So there's three times a woman is referred to in the book of Revelation. Earlier on, a woman is referred to um, as the nation of Israel. We looked at that earlier. Now here, this great harlot, this woman is referred to as Babylon and as the one of uh, great power who has deceived the entire earth. And now uh, we're going to come to chapter 19 and move forward, and we're going to find another woman mentioned. Do you know who she is? She's us. She's the bride of Christ. And so we're going to find a great contrast as we go through these things. The great harlot here is in the wilderness in verse 3. The bride of Christ is in heaven in chapter 19. Here the great harlot will ride the beast and become one with Satan. Uh, our bride, we will return with Christ in glory. This great uh, harlot is adorned in luxury. We're ta- you know, going to look at how she's adorned as we move along here in this study. We will be adorned in righteousness. We will be robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This woman, the great harlot, is drinking a cup of abomination. She's drinking the blood of the saints. We will be drinking the water of life, the fountain of living water from Jesus Christ. This harlot has a great city in verse 18. We will be dwelling in a holy city, the kingdom of God. This harlot will declare war against the Lamb of God himself. We will be reigning with the Lamb of God. This harlotry, this woman, will end in destruction in chapter 18. However, we will live forever and ever with our bridegroom in heaven in chapters 21 and 22. So in verse 3 it says, so uh, John speaking, he carried me away in the spirit again into the wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast which was full of names of blasphemy having seven heads and ten horns. So let's talk about this for a moment. She is depicted here as a great harlot and the word harlot here is the Greek word porneo meaning she's involved in fornication which is the equivalent of spiritual adultery. Again, the Old Testament prophets brought these charges against Nineveh, against Tyre, against Babylon, and even against Jerusalem in Jeremiah. And the symbolism that John uses here in the book of Revelation, the great harlot represents the apostate religion and its interdependence on and its political power that's formed throughout the world. Um, Some people make a strong case against the Catholic Church, which later rose 
um, of course, and uh, just corrupted the entire world with its power. And, of course, under Constantine, uh, through those periods of time known as the Dark Ages, the, the Catholic Church became a very dark place. And it's possible that John was referring uh, prophetically to the Catholic Church, but as, as we mentioned that, I certainly don't want everyone here who uh, is Catholic or has come out of that background to be offended by that, because I don't think ultimately he's saying, as some commentators have said, that the Catholic Church is the great harlot of the book of Revelation. I think the great harlot of the book of Revelation is religion being corrupted, not particularly Catholicism. Although Catholicism was, of course, corrupted, as we know, through the Dark Ages and the Crusades and all of that. But many uh, religions, especially Christian religions, have been corrupted. Coming back to this uh, commentator here who had some very good points to make for us. However one interprets the woman's identity, it is clear that she represents the false religion of the last days. This woman represents all false religion of all time, including those who apostatize from the revealed religion of Christianity. Someone else added, the picture of the woman as utterly evil signifies spiritual adultery, portraying those who outwardly and religiously seem to be joined to the true God, but who are untrue to this relationship. And so there's the idea. We have people claiming that they know God, in some form or fashion, claiming that they're loyal to God, but in reality, their actions and how they worship and whom they worship, none of it points to God. Now, I don't know if you follow the news, how many of you have been following the fact that one of the, the a pastor of a large megachurch in uh, Maryland um, a few weeks ago declared that he's no longer a Christian. He resigned from his church and stepped down. Just maybe two weeks ago, uh, one of the most prolific songwriters for Christian songs that we sing, who has worked with Hillsong and worked independently and worked with other uh, contemporary Christian bands, he recently came out and said, I'm very confused about my faith. I'm not sure what I believe. I'm not even sure I'm still a Christian. And those are just two of the most recent ones that we've heard about. And here we are in what we believe the last days are the precursor to the last days, and we have people coming out and saying, I take this man, this pastor from Maryland, and I, I met him at a conference. Um, I have a friend who uh, used to go to that church and who actually went, they had a pastor, the church still has a pastor's school, a pastor's college, and he graduated from that, and I went down and spent a weekend with him at that church. This was right before he was appointed as the pastor of that church, but just an incredible church, a, a godly church. Um, God has used that church in a, in a powerful way, and this man pastored that church for, I don't know, eight or ten years, maybe maybe more. I'm not really sure how long he pastored it, and I think of someone standing in the pulpit every Sunday, proclaiming the word of God, leading. I mean, they had multiple services. It was probably five to 10,000 people going to this church, very popular church. And here he comes out saying, not, not only am I confused, he went beyond that. He declared, and you can go read his, uh, his post on Instagram and Facebook. He said very, very clearly, I no longer believe these things. I am not a Christian. And it just makes me wonder, although I can't say that I've ever heard any of his sermons, what did he, what did he teach? What did he proclaim for all those years from the pulpit? And yet if that can happen in what we would consider a very strong, uh, approved evangelical church, how this can happen in false religions, how people can be led astray so easily. That's why it's important for all of you as sons and daughters of Jesus Christ, saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, that you be Bereans, that you be people who check out things according to the word of God, and that we look at God's word as our standard by which we judge and evaluate things and people and what is said and behavior, and not just go, wow, because someone stands in a pulpit and dresses nice and 
uh, commands a presence and is an incredible communicator. I mean, that can all become a part of the deception, and certainly the Antichrist will use all those things as a deception in the last days. And uh, you better believe that the false prophet will be a man who is very suave. He will have uh, a golden tongue, so to speak, in the way that he speaks and leads. I mean, this man, the Antichrist, will be a leader like none other. I mean, think about someone who's finally able to broker peace in the Middle East. Think about what kind of a negotiator, the skills that he will have. And so uh, this man will come, and and in the various forms, the, the devil, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, and he will work a work that will be so deceptive that it will uh, take over all religion. Now, keep in mind, at this point in history, as, as we believe that the church will be raptured at the beginning of the tribulation, the church won't be here, but there will be some form of religion left. There will be those who are left behind who thought they were Christians and, and weren't. And so there will be forms of the different religions. There will be a form of Catholicism, of Orthodox Christianity, of Protestantism, of various forms of evangelicalism, charismatic, Pentecostal, all of that stuff will be left behind in some form or fashion. And yet they will all be a part of worshiping this false God. Remember earlier, as we've already looked at this, everyone left on the world at this time will either be a believer, and that'll be very, very few during the time of the tribulation, or they will have taken the mark of the beast. So the people who have taken the mark of the beast are already so deceived that they have no choice at that point but to worship Satan. They must worship Satan because that is what he declares. So as we continue here, and this will move along a little bit quicker, we're just sort of laying the groundwork. The woman was arrayed in purple, verse 4, and scarlet. So that speaks of royalty and and how she's clothed. Certainly that picture does not fit with the church. It doesn't fit with the name and the character of Jesus Christ. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. It sounds more like prosperity doctrine to me, honestly. Having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her head, a name was written, and here's what it said, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and of the abominations of the earth. This is who she is. Now, when it says here at the beginning of verse 5, Mystery, Babylon the Great, I believe when we get to this point in time in history, like so many things, there are things that won't be known until you get into this context, until you're in the context of the seven years and particularly the last three and a half years. Because when it says mystery, Babylon the Great, I don't believe it's talking specifically about a city, although there will be a a place on the earth during this time that is the center, the, 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 the economic and power and religious center of this period of time. Is it literally Babylon? Most commentators agree that it won't be literally Babylon, that it will be some city that is set up during that time that is the place of economic, political wealth, and there will be a city, whether it's the same or a different one, that will be a center of religious organization. So we don't know exactly where that will be, but certainly it will be but more importantly, it's the system itself that is being judged, being judged. Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and of the abominations of the earth. The abominations of the earth are not going to necessarily be committed in one location. They will be committed globally. And let me share this with you. The question is often debated among evangelicals. Uh, whether this Babylon is the Babylon of ancient times revived in the last days or whether it is symbolic of Rome revived in the last days. Either way, those who view the Revelation as a prophecy of the future must look for a future Babylon or a future Rome as the fulfillment of this prediction. In this regard, let us consider several key factors. The early church unanimously viewed Babylon as Rome, that during the time that John wrote, John understood Babylon to refer to Rome. None of the earth... Excuse me, none of the early church fathers held that Babylon was to be taken literally. They all viewed it as symbolic of the Roman Empire in general and the city of Rome in particular in that day. 
The reformers and the Puritans later were also unanimous in taking Babylon, excuse me, as a symbol of Rome. The only difference was that they extended it to refer to papal Rome as the apostate church of the last days. Uh, There is no valid reason today to assume that ancient Babylon will literally be rebuilt and rise to power overnight as the dominant world city and capital of the Antichrist. So that's the most reasonable thing I read in looking at all of this. And as we look at what's happening here during this time with this kingdom, Babylon, uh, here's some of the things we see, that Babylon is rich and prosperous, that it's immoral and drunken, that it's associated with Satan and the beast, that it is a city, we're told later, we're going to get to that in a moment, that sits on seven mountains. Traditionally, historically, the only city that's the city of seven mountains has always been referred to as Rome. The leader of a ten-nation confederacy with the Roman or the European roots will reign from this region, wherever it is. It is a city that reigns over many nations. It's a city of commerce and enterprise. Sailors get there from the sea, so it will likely be a city that has a seaport that's close to the sea or close to a river that's near the mouth of where it enters uh, the sea. It'll become an entertainment capital. We'll see that next week in chapter 18. And we'll also find in chapter 18 that it's a city that burns up in one hour as God judges it. Now, it's interesting also as we think back to what Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 51. Let me read three verses to you. Jeremiah wrote these words, Flee from the midst of Babylon, and everyone save his life. Do not be cut off in her iniquity, for this is the time of the Lord's vengeance. He shall recompense her. Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made all the earth drunk. The nations drank her wine. Therefore, the nations are deranged. Listen to the language. Babylon has suddenly fallen and been destroyed. Wail for her. Take balm for her pain, perhaps that she may be healed. And we believe that Jeremiah prophetically in chapter 51, verses 6 through 8, is referring to what's happening here in Revelation chapter 17. So, John is referring here to both what Jeremiah wrote, we believe, as well as understanding that Rome in his time was certainly fulfilling that. But later, as we go down through the ages and we get to where we are today and even look forward, it doesn't necessarily have to be Rome. It can be another place on the face of the earth where the Antichrist establishes his rule and reign. So as we continue in verse 6, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. So John is able to see this. The angel is showing him these things. And so verse 6 should give us a strong picture and understanding of the fact that Satan hates Christians, Satan hates Jesus, and his system of worship in the end because he sets himself up as the object of worship will be everything that is against Jesus Christ. He hates Jesus. And thus he will put everyone to death during the time of the tribulation who comes to Christ and who takes the name of Christ. And he will do it in vile and violent and horrendous ways as he puts these people to death. But the angel said to me in verse 7, Why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Now, This language, you know, the beast that was and is not and yet is, I think he's just trying to give us a picture so that we understand as we're reading these words and studying them. You know, we don't see today the manifestation of a literal Satan, just as we saw Jesus come and take on flesh and be among us, but he will one day take on flesh and become among us. So as he uses this language here where he says the beast that was, so we know the scriptures tell us there's a real spiritual battle again in Ephesians 6. There's a battle in the heavenly places 
We do not war against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against forces and spiritual wickedness in the heavenly places. So the devil is there. He's working behind the scenes. He's the prince of the power of the air. He is the one to whom the earth has been given over to in terms of dominion. So the world is under the influence or the sway of the wicked one. John even tells us at the end of 1 John chapter 5. But he's not seen until the time of the tribulation when he takes on a literal human form in the form of the antichrist and the false prophet and so that's why he's saying the beast that was and is not and yet is so he will uh, appear to people you know there's people who say you know there's no devil right there's a lot of people who believe that of course there's people who believe there is a devil and they worship him even now but if you think about it the bible is telling us here in the book of revelation that we will enter a time during the time of the tribulation when regardless of what people believe, everyone will be worshiping this person called the devil. No matter how he portrays himself to people, he will be worshiped as the devil. And certainly the point will come, I think, during that midpoint when he reveals himself through the abomination by going into the temple to declare himself as God, I think people will begin to understand at that point that he has manifested himself as the devil, although people will become deceived and think he is actually the Messiah. It's going to be a crazy time to be alive, and I certainly hope and pray none of us are present during that time. And so this beast that you saw that was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition and those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life that's the deception for all those people living in that time and here is the mind which has wisdom verse 9 the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits it's interesting that we find here in the book of revelation four times the word wisdom is used the first two times are used of Jesus Christ in Revelation 5. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Wisdom, true wisdom, is ascribed to Jesus Christ. In Revelation chapter 7, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, where wisdom is ascribed to the Godhead or to God the Father. But in Revelation 13, 18, you may remember as we got to the end of that chapter, it says, Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man whose number is 666. So during that time, those who are alive who have understanding, those who are the believers in particular, they will understand the meaning of that enigma 666. They will be given a spiritual wisdom, a spiritual understanding, but here... In chapter 17, verse 9, here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Again, Revelation is speaking to whom? It's speaking to Christians. It's speaking to people who understand who Jesus is. Remember at the beginning, the tone is set, and it said it is the revelation, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And so now... Here in Revelation 17, the mind which has wisdom is also speaking to believers, helping us understand, and the believers of that day, more importantly, the seven heads are the seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. So five of these kings or kingdoms had passed off the scene. One was present in John's day. One was yet to come. If so, then, the five past kingdoms would likely be Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and Greece. And we know this from Daniel's prophecy. The present kingdom would be Rome in John's day. And the future kingdom would be that of, quote, the beast. And in order to understand that, we have to understand what's happening here so let's keep going so it makes more sense verse 11 the beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition so the beast will be a part of this confederation of these leaders but it's saying he will arise out of that and become the eighth verse 12 the ten horns which you saw we've already talked about this through daniel's prophecy uh, are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. 
So it would seem that a part of the deception that the beast brings during this time is he promises power and authority and money and all of that to these other kings, which we believe will be a confederacy that's formed within the European Union. And by the way, another side note, bonus information. Did you see yesterday in the continuing ongoing saga of Britain exiting uh, Brexit, as it's called, they announced actually this morning I saw in the headlines that they're saying we're done, we're out. And if that's true, it's changing the balance of power in what's happening in Europe. It's just pieces on the chessboard that God is moving around. So they will receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. Is it a literal hour? Probably not. It's just saying it's a short time. And then these are of one mind, verse 13, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. So they will all come together. They will agree, okay, yes, you're the world leader. Yes, you're the one we're following. Yes, whatever you want, you ask, and we'll give it to you. And they'll form this confederacy, and they'll bow and give homage to the beast, to the, to the world leader. And then right after they do that, what do you think is going to happen? These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, for he is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. Reading between the lines of 13 and 14, the beast is garnering all the power of the earth that he can gather. Why? Because now the battle of Armageddon is coming. He wants as much as he can get so he can try to stand and make a, a showing against the Lamb of God. He's come to fight against Jesus. You see, we may look at the temptation of Jesus. Remember when the 40 days when he came out of the desert? And we, we look at that and we think, well, Satan was being kind of deceptive there and trying to like steal things away from Jesus, promising him power. Then look, it's, it's been given into my hands. I can give it to you. I can give it to whomever I wish. And Jesus says, nope. I'm going to honor the Father. I'm not going to look at you. And yet here, now we see, uh, if we could, again, reading between the lines, maybe he's still angry about that, that Jesus wouldn't fall under his sway. And now he's going to come in, in might against Jesus. But it's interesting now, we're talking still about the religious system that's going on here and how the beast has committed harlotry and led all these people astray. Let me just read this to you because I think it brings things into perspective. Throughout history, political systems have used religious bodies to further their political causes. Let me stop and make a little parenthetical here. Every time we have a presidential election... There's always a strong catering to the evangelical component, isn't there? And why do you think they do that? Is it on the basis of <clears throat> good intentions, of morals, of doing what is right, of, of in the name of truth, in the name of Jesus Christ even? Saying, I'm going to, you know, you know what are the issues that are important to evangelicals? Well, there's abortion and there's you know, gun control and you know, all these things, right? And they come and they, they use the church. And, the, and this is what's going to continue to happen. It's always been the, the motto of Satan to take religion, and especially to take Christianity, and somehow bend it to use it for political power, as well as for religious power. So throughout history, political systems have used religious bodies to further their political causes. At the same time, church history reveals that religious groups have used politics to achieve their purposes. So it's worked both ways. The marriage of the church and state is not a happy one and has often spawned children that have created serious problems. When dictators are friendly with religion, it is usually a sign that they want to make use of religion's influence and then destroy it. The church of Jesus Christ has been most influential in the world when it has maintained a separated position. Meaning that we as believers don't proclaim an alliance regardless of how we vote. We don't say, okay, you know, all Christians are Republicans or whatever, conservatives. The, the, the people in the political power, all they want to know is, here's a whole group of people I can polarize for my purposes. And, and we even see people coming and stumping at churches, stumping at large political uh, rallies uh, formed in a religious context. And the same thing will happen in these last days. Verse 14, these will make war with the Lamb. All the kings that the, the Antichrist has brought under his control and garnered his power from them. 
These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them. Maybe you want to underline that. Okay? And the Lamb will overcome them. Why? For he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with him, that's us, that's the bride, are called chosen, excuse me, are called chosen and faithful. And what does this say? That even those who live during this time who become believers under the penalty of death, knowing that they'll lose their heads, that they will lose their lives, they will be called, chosen, and faithful. They will not be under the sway of the wicked one. This will be the time of the greatest deception, and yet these believers will not fall prey to the deceptions of Satan. And I would say to you today, Neither should we. And how much more do we have the truth today? We have our Bibles. We have the freedom to read our Bibles. There is no reason for us not to know the truth. There is no reason for us to to fall prey to the deceptiveness and the schemes of the wicked one. There is no reason for us to be influenced by the darts of the enemy because we have the full armor of God. We have the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit, the the, the feet of the gospel. We have the helmet of salvation. We have the belt of truth. We have all these things at our disposal. Then he said to me in verse 15, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. Thank you for defining that for us. We would have been debating this. There would have been more commentaries written than you can count on that topic had he not told us what that means. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, and eat her flesh and burn her with fire. Now it seems there's a rebellion from within the confederacy once they realize what has happened to them and how the Antichrist has deceived them. They turn against him and they implode, and it would seem that they have this uprising and they create this this war where they're basically fighting amongst themselves. Verse 17, For God has put it into their hearts... Again, you might want to underline that, verse 17, the beginning. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose. God is in control. Now, we use this term, the sovereignty of God. This is an example of the sovereignty of God. And the word sovereign or the sovereignty of God refers to the fact that God rules and reigns supreme. There is no one higher than God. The little story that happened to me yesterday is an example of the sovereignty of God. And I hope and pray you all have your own story of something like that, that you have an encounter with an unbeliever or you have an encounter with a Christian or God somehow has these God appointments for you. And you begin to understand God is orchestrating the affairs of my life. And I really think ultimately that's what God wants us to understand that he is orchestrating the affairs of mankind. And no matter what we think, no matter how we might be tempted to think that things are random in our lives, if you know Jesus Christ and you've given your life to him and you've been washed by the blood of the lamb, you have been marked by Jesus, you belong to him. And nothing, listen to me, nothing is random in your life. You were under his watchful eye. When things come into your life, good, bad, or indifferent, they come past the throne of God and they first receive the scrutiny and the approval of God before they enter your life. God is sovereign. God rules over the affairs of man, not just in some global sense that it doesn't touch us. God cares about details. And we need to understand that. Why? Because it will guard us against bitterness when things don't go the way we want them to go. When bad things happen to what we perceive to be good people, and let me remind you, there's no one good but God. All have sinned and all have gone astray. We're not good. We're chosen, we're forgiven, we're saved, but we're not good. Only God is good. And when these bad things happen, quote, to to good people, like the gentleman I met yesterday, horrendous, Understand that God has a purpose. God has a plan. Remember Romans 8, 28, and we know that God causes 
all things to work together to the good of those who are the called and to those who love him. God is sovereign. God rules and reigns supreme. Here in Roman, uh, Revelation 17, 17, for God put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. God's word will be fulfilled. Always. Even if we haven't seen it yet, it will happen. It will come to pass. Verse 18, And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. How does all this relate to Babylon? The Babylonian system of false religion has been a part of history since Nimrod founded his empire. Scholars have discovered it's amazingly true, like the Christian faith. Alas, it is Satan's counterfeit of God's truth. Babylonians practiced the worship of mother and child and even believed in the death and resurrection of the son. They have a counterfeit all the way back to the days of Nimrod. But consider these words that the Apostle Paul wrote, and they echo to us today. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 4, now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. And then again in 2 Timothy chapter 3, but know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Listen to this, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And from such people, turn away. These are the things Paul would said would happen toward the end of the age. And these are the things that are always facing facing the church. There's always a risk of deception because Satan is crafty, because Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And if Satan can now, in this time, before the church is taken out, and before Second Thessalonians 2, as it, as it tells us that the Holy Spirit will be removed from the earth when the church is taken out of the way. A time when deception will be rampant, when deception will be easy. But even now, during the time of what we might call the church age, Satan is still trying to deceive people. He's trying to deceive, if possible, even the elect, which is a verse that applies to the time of the end. But it can also apply to us in the church. And so you see, false religion will become a key component to the end times. It'll be something that Satan wants to use to his advantage. But I would say he's building up now. He's gathering the firewood for that moment, so to speak. He's gathering his ammunition, and he's doing it today. And we just have two casualties that I mentioned earlier from uh, Christianity where people have fallen prey to becoming confused or renouncing Christ or whatever you want to call it. And if Satan can deceive people who are pastors, people who are allegedly writing the lyrics that we project on a screen and that we worship the Lord with, if they can do that, if they can be deceived, it ought to sort of put a little bit of fear and trembling into us. And you say, how is it that I can not be deceived? And we're holding it in our hands. It's right here. And let me use this as a moment, as, as an opportune moment to just encourage you and warn you and say, if you're not in this book, if you're not reading it, and, and dare I say every day, 
then you are going to be prone to deception. Why? Because the further away from God you drift, the more open you are to some other truth, to some other revelation. This is truth. This is absolute truth. This is God's word to you and me. We read it today in the Psalms. Did you catch it? I rejoice at your word as one who has found great treasure. Jesus said in John 15, talking about abiding in Christ, we love that passage, and he says in there, apart from me, you can do nothing. Now we ought to take that literally. You see, we're deceived. We're thinking, I don't need you for this. I don't need you for that. I don't need you for that, Lord. I don't need you for the decision that I'm going to make about what I'm going to eat for breakfast in the morning or Uh, I don't need to ask you for the strength to tie my shoes. And I would say to you, yes, we do. I would rather the pendulum swing to that end of the decision spectrum than to go to the, well, I'll just bring God in when I need him. You see, that's, that's where we get deceived. We open ourselves up to deception because we think we don't need him. We need him every moment of every day. You know the old hymn, I need thee every hour. That is the truth of God's word. So if you're... If you've been deceived, then you know. Apart from his word, you will be deceived. But if you aren't washing your mind with this word, then you are going to be prone to being deceived. And this is not a religious requirement. This is not a a law. This is a principle of life. You know, if you have a relationship with a human being, whether it's a friend or whether it's a spouse... If you don't ever talk to them, if you don't spend time with them, what happens? You grow apart, right? Your relationship grows cold. And it's the same with the Lord. If we don't spend time with him, we grow apart. And who drifts? Who moves in the relationship? It's you and me. It's not him. He doesn't move. He doesn't change. The Lord is the same yesterday, today, yes, and forever. The grass fades, the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever, right? If that's true, then we ought to wash our minds with it. We ought to fill our hearts with it. We ought to, again, as the hymn is just coming to my mind, sorry, uh, tune my my heart to sing your grace. How do I tune my heart? Uh, You know, I have a guitar tuner here. I need that because I don't have perfect pitch. I can't hear it. So I need something to tune to. Here's what we tune to right here, right? We tune our lives to this. That way, even if I stand here one day, God help me and say, I'm renouncing the name of Jesus Christ. I no longer believe in him. My whole life has been a hoax. Hopefully, if that ever happens, and I pray, of course, to the Lord that it won't, you won't be shaken. Why? Because you know that this is true. And I was a liar. This is true. This is truth. In that day, these people will be deceived, right? Because they, they will be involved in religions that don't allow you to read the Word of God. In fact, their religions won't even be based on the Word of God. It'll be based on something else. There is only one basis for my life and for your life. There's only one source of truth, and it's the Word of God. Amen. Lord, thank you for your Word this morning. We love you. We worship you. And we just want to tell you, Lord that we need you. And this morning, Lord, maybe there's a little repentance that needs to go on in all of our hearts, mine included, that we've not been as faithful to just be with you. And Lord, maybe we struggle with it. Maybe it's become a legalistic thing. Oh, Lord, I pray that it would not be. I pray that it would rather be an act of love understanding that we are responding to the grace and the love and the mercy that you have so freely shown us through your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we are responding to that love by saying, God, I'm here. I want to know you. Fill me with your love. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Lord, give me your word. Give me the heart that can say to you along with the psalmist, uh, verse 162, as we read this morning in Psalm 119, I rejoice at your word as one who has found great treasure. Let that be us, God. Let us be people of the word that we might demonstrate to you our love for you. Lord, change us, transform our lives.
rend our hearts, Lord, if we need to be torn apart in order that we might be broken down, that we might be humbled, that we might realize our only hope is in you. Lord, we love you. We bless you. We worship you. Would you fill us with yourself now as we go from this place? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's sing a song.